Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout. This episode is the eighth in a 12-part series with Michael Trout. Be sure to visit us on Podbean, iTunes, or Google Play for previous podcasts, as well as future episodes. And now your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter. All right, so um, back again, uh, talking about applying attachment theory to to adults. And um, I mean, of course, too, I'm thinking this is this is a lot of what Bowlby did. I mean, you know, he he was looking at adults, too, and and, you know, came upon his ideas by looking at uh, adults, uh, juvenile delinquents. That's how he started to come upon his ideas. You know, there seems to be a correlation here with these young men and in that they all had difficult losses or painful, particularly painful experiences with their mother. Um, so, you know, even though we think of it um, for, as a, child development idea it is applicable all across the lifespan from the cradle to the grave is what Bowlby said that we need that safe haven and secure base so what other thoughts do you have um, on how to bring that into our therapy with individuals by the way since you mentioned them let's just take note that i think he's a marvelous model for the answer to your question he didn't discover a new theory particularly. It just seemed commonsensical to him, at least as I read uh, those early readings in the late 40s and early 50s. It was commonsensical to him that there would be a connection between early loss, he wouldn't have called it trauma back then, but uh, between those things and how juvenile delinquents turned out. So I guess I would then say the next rule, so to speak, the next guideline for how to work with adults is simply to appreciate that um, unbroken line between early experience and present life. And not to, not to do that in a way that, not to do it in the same way that certain psychoanalytic theory would suggest that makes us trapped, for example, um, or makes us uh, need to repeat but rather that what I'm doing right now, that man sitting on my couch being articulate but boring and going on endlessly, there's a direct line between that mouth of his, that life of his, that longing, that airport behavior of his. There's a direct unbroken line between that and something long ago. Mm-hmm. Part of what we bring to bear on treatment of adults then is simply a, a, a relaxed, easygoing, flexible, but clear appreciation for that link between early times and present times. It does not give us um, the right to jump out of our chair and say, aha. It does let us quietly inside say many times during a session, I wonder. I wonder where she saw that 
happen. I wonder where he's heard that before. I wonder when this feeling of longing began. And I wonder who it was originally for. Hmm. When that same fellow told me with great disgust about his wife's not coming across sexually enough, uh, I asked for some details, not frankly because I wanted to get into the issue of treatment of their sexual dysfunction, if it was that, because I wanted to know what she was seeing. Mm. And what she was seeing is it was never her. She knew that intuitively, the way he came at her sexually, the frequency, the, the, uh, the look on his face, the intensity of it, she never had the feeling that it was her he was after. And I thought, could she be right? And if she's right, who is it? And by definition, that meant we were looking backward. Yes. Yes. Hmm. One, one woman uh, in her 50s, I guess, had lived a life of a lot of sexual promiscuity. That's what she would call it. Um, and problems with weight. Her weight had varied hugely over the years uh, from ex quite obese to quite thin. She had actually had anorexia during adolescence. <clears throat> make a very long story short, she acknowledged finally that she had never been full. And I asked, I asked what that meant. She, I said, are you talking about food? She said, well, yeah, partly. I, I'm never satisfied with a meal, but I'm never satisfied with sex either. It's never enough. It never makes me feel like I think I should feel. So I just want some more, which I suppose is why I've acted this way sexually all of my life. Mm. And I asked her uh, out of the blue, I'm sure it felt like to her, but I felt a little pressure of time with her because I had a feeling, and I turned out to be right, that she wasn't going to hang around very long with me. Um, I asked her uh, what her birth weight was. It's a 50-year-old uh, woman sitting in my office, and she thought that was the dumbest question she ever heard in her whole life. So she And she didn't know. So she called up her mom that night and came back the next session and make a very long story short, what she learned from her mother is not only that she was very, very small, but that her mother had lost weight during the pregnancy for her. Her mother very determined to not be fat. So she had birthed this little girl, the mother did, weighing less than she, the mother had before she ever got pregnant in the first place. Wow. And I don't know that that's the, so to speak, cause, the way we usually think of that word cause, but I can, I have no doubt that there's a link between the fact that this group, this woman was starved in pregnancy while during life inside, and she's never been able to get enough to eat and never been able to get enough sexual satisfaction since that time. I'm quite sure that they're linked. Mm -hmm. The only way we can make those guesses, however, is that is if we're always alive to the connections. 
Again, not presumptuous about the connections, not ready to say aha about the connections, just alive to the possibility that where the person is right now is not where everything started. Because if we uh, espouse to a developmental perspective with humans, um, these things aren't just coming up in sessions you have with people. <laughs> They're coming up in all sessions. And as you said, it's a matter of being alive and being curious about this, that these things reveal themselves. Um, these things could easily be said in a session and it could just be passed over and on to the next question or, or whatever from the therapist. By the way, they could also be, and this would be equally sad, they could also be ruined by a too early interpretation. So mm -hmm. you know, they didn't say to that woman, say, you suppose there could be, you could have been real skinny when you were a baby and there could, no, that would have ruined it all. These links are very, very delicate. They can snap, they can bend too much. Um, the person is often afraid of them, even though they don't know about them. So how we bring a person's attention to the links is extremely important. It's one of the few times when I'm a stickler for technique, for strategy. We just can't say too much too soon which is why we stick with open-ended questions like, well, actually, what was your birth weight? Is not an open-ended question, but it's an open-ended investigation. When you say a stickler on technique in that particular way, is there anything more you wanna say about that? Um, you, you're talking just, about timing and pacing and... Just, it means discipline, it means not getting too excited about your own brilliance, not getting too excited about your own clever uh, interpretations, and for goodness sakes, not having a need or dramatically controlling your need to be shown to be right regarding those connections. Instead, you have to be very soft, very gentle, very slow, and just wonder with the adult patient. Have you ever felt this way before? Yeah, that's that's really good. I mean, I think sometimes, and um, some of the supervision that I've done with people, um, when they want to say too much too quickly or too soon, and I say, you have this inside you this information, these thoughts, what they shared, you don't have to use it all this minute. I mean, <laughs> you, and it may evolve, it may change, but- um, well, You may be proven completely wrong. <laughs> and wouldn't that be fun too? Yes, but I, I hear you about this need to jump in and be right or have a conclusion or, you know, take the next step in, in the manualized approach. 
um, or grab the first port of entry you see. Uh, we're talking about child-parent psychotherapy. And I mean, Michael, I don't think this is talked about and taught very much at all. Well, I would hope at the very least, the risks put forth by our own narcissism as clinicians would be considered, at least in supervision. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that clinicians are, are always narcissistic, much less pathologically so. I am saying it's real easy to get caught up with your own brilliance and like it a little too much. Mm -hmm. Lose the modesty that, by the way, really comes and comes easily uh, if you're a true scientist. Yes. You don't forget that alongside being a clinician, you are a scientist. Then you realize all I have are bits of data. My job is to keep looking through that microscope and not, not run out of the room screaming, I found it, I found it, to self or others too quickly. <sighs> but we do that. <sighs> we do that. I'm, guilt, I'm guilty as charged. Um, I remember one of the first adult attachment interviews I gave and um, the, the individual clearly had a really dismissing stance and talked about things from his history and, um, and um, just an unfeeling way and a, a also the idea, you know, it made me a better person that these terrible things happened to me. So. Um, and I remember thinking, wow, in the next session, you know, I might offer empathy for some of these things that happened to him. Well, as you can imagine, that blew up in my face because the whole idea is that he avoids feeling about those things. <laughs> so my idea that I suddenly had, you know, these things to share that were going to enlighten him. Um, and I remember afterwards thinking, you fool. I mean, his whole strategy is to avoid looking at things with emotion and, and to dampen and suppress attachment needs. But somehow I thought I really unearthed an important thing to, to bring up the very next session, in fact. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. Um, so... And then that's where it really, that really hits the kids. That moment when you're wrong, what happens then? Because that's a wonderful moment, unless it's not. And if it's not, too, it's really too bad, because it needs to be a wonderful moment. The moments when we're proven inadequate, the moments when we're proven just simply factually wrong, the moments when we're clinically off base, those are every bit as important as the moments of clinical genius. Yes. So, um, looking at that unbroken connection um, between what the person's telling you now and what it could relate to earlier or when that could have maybe first started, something like that. Any 
anything else uh, you would add? Just a comment on that word unbroken. We're also, of course, with adults, very interested in moments that seemed, in fact, to break the connection. Moments when the person behaved uncharacteristically, when they engaged in a relationship that was not like the others. And we really want to know all about that. So we're always asking for exceptions to the pattern, moments when it wasn't like that, or when it felt different. A girlfriend in seventh grade, a teacher, a Sunday school teacher maybe, or um, somebody along the way, something along the way that felt different than all the rest. We really hone in on that. Mm. We're not there to prove that this person has lived a consistent life from early loss or trauma to the, the present moment. We're interested in all sorts of adaptations and defenses along the way. Mm -hmm. They're meaningful too. Yes, that's true. And, you know, some, someone might say, well, why does all that matter? Uh, insight is overrated. Um, and I think, and I'm going to know why you think it matters, of course. I think it matters because you're creating a coherent autobiographical narrative. You're, you're helping a person put together what happened, how it affected them, how it impacts their behavior now. And to me, that, that makes all the difference between being driven by unconscious things and really having no idea why you're doing these things, maybe knowing you don't want to, what do you think? Why does making these links and, and um, having been able to connect to earlier experiences matter? Mostly, I think, because the opposite, the other, doesn't. I mean, watch, a, watch an adoptive or foster parent try to get through to an acting out, rage-filled, seemingly morally bankrupt child. The, the initial forays are always the same. Now, is that the way we act? Or I won't have that, or I don't deserve that sort of behavior in my house, or stealing is wrong, don't you know? Or if I catch you doing all, you know, the whole gamut of things, none of which, by the way, all of which help other kids who are basically intact. They're affected by the, the seeming disapproval of a grown-up often. These kids, as you and I particularly know, are not. We watch that happen over and over again. We watch the child's eyes glaze over. We, saw, we see him recommit to his own ways of behaving all along the way. We know none of that works. Secretly, I think foster and adoptive parents know it doesn't work either because they see the kid is not paying a bit of attention to what they're saying. Nothing helps until the day when either accidentally or because of some change of heart on the part of the parent, they say something about where the child comes from. 
they say something that relates to an original narrative. They never say it, if it works on this day, they will not say it with a challenge. You know, your first mother didn't love you, that's why you act this way. Never, ever, ever that way. But a, a parent who stops the object lesson garbage and says, I'm so sorry, and then shuts up and lets the child say, uh, with a lot of curse words, I don't care whether you're sorry, I don't care about your feelings at all. And then the mom says again, I know, I know, sweetheart. You've had to work very, very hard to make sure you don't care too much about what grown-ups think. What have grown-ups done for you? And if you're really, really, really lucky, and it's a good day, the child may say nothing. Or the child may say nothing except pain. And now you're in. Mm -hmm. Now, is that a moment of insight? Well, I guess you can call it that. Mostly it's a moment of stopping the other stuff. The psychoeducational approaches, the didactic approaches, the uh, lesson plan approaches that simply don't, they don't make a crack in the person. Mm. And in my view, it works exactly the same way as, it, as I just explained, I think it does with really, really troubled foster or adoptive children. It works the same way in grown-ups. <clears throat> we can try 12 different strategies with them, but I don't think any of it has a lot of long-term effect until that moment when they get a chance, not we get a chance, they get a chance to see some connection. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a, a really great stopping point for us today. Um, I, think, I think that's very, very helpful. So thank you. Very welcome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. This episode is the eighth in a 12-part series with Michael Trout. Please follow our site, www.theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.